that enthusiastic encouragement to us all to bring our praise to the Lord in that Psalm 148 uh, starts me off on my, on my trajectory here this morning. Over many years in the ministry, I have become increasingly convinced that most of us could get more out of the singing part of our church services. I believe it's the most important part of the service. The preacher is liable to the temptation to think that the sermon is the most important part because it's the bit he has to spend most time on preparing for, slaving over and sweating and worrying about. But from the point of view of the worshipping congregation, I would have thought the songs, the worship songs and hymns are maybe more, maybe go deeper and are more valuable. I have even been known to shock unsuspecting congregations by saying when we announced the first hymn that if you all sing this hymn from the heart, after it's over, I'll pronounce the benediction and let you go home. I've never carried out the threat, but I've said it in order to try to persuade people that what they are about to do here is something emotional and powerful and deep and potentially life-shaping. You come into the presence of Almighty God with the angels and the archangels and you speak to your loving Heavenly Father of your love and of your honor and of your commitment and of your thanks to him. That's pretty powerful, deep, important stuff for a person to do. Those are precious moments in your life. I suppose it comes down to us making sure that we know the meaning of the words of the hymns and therefore can think about them and can mean them. I find in many cases thinking about where the hymn writer or the songwriter got their inspiration from helps me to get into the to the meaning of the hymn so that I, or the song so that I can so that I can sing it with my heart. Let's think about some of the places where the hymn writers and songwriters have got their inspiration and see if it helps you to get into them better. A huge number of the hymn writers in the past, of course, got their inspiration from the, from the Bible passage. Chisholm pondered Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. 
And so he ran with that. And wrote, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Newton, the converted slave trader, pondered Psalm 87, verse 3, in the King James Version. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. And so we have glorious things of thee are spoken of Zion, city of our God. Smith pondered Paul's words in First Timothy. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. But he ran with that one. So some handwritten letters, of course, find their inspiration in the Bible. We would have to admit that sometimes hymn writers find their inspiration in the apocryphal books. Henry Light, Portora Boy, pondered the book of Tobit, a passage from it. That was his inspiration for what we sang at the beginning of the service, Praise my soul, the King of Heaven. Mind you, he was even more inspired by his recent conversion. He was one of those ministers who was converted after, not before, he went into the ministry. When an older minister, they have their uses, you know, had long conversations with him. He had just drifted into the ministry out of a general desire to do good. Let's not knock that. That's all right. But this older minister said, you've got to take far more seriously Paul's teaching about sin and man's need of salvation. And you don't have far to look in that hymn to see that light had come through to to an important new experience. It's in that dramatic third line, four past participles, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. Some hymn writers got their inspiration in the good old shorter catechisms, which some of you are old enough to remember. There's a lovely hymn in most of our hymn books. I don't know if you sing it in Fitzroy. You should. Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power. The hymn is saying that if you add up all the names and titles for Jesus, it's still not enough to sing my Savior's worth. But what the hymn writer does is pick out a scheme from the shorter catechism which explains Jesus' work for us in terms of prophet, priest, and king. So we have verse 2 and 3 and 4 on Jesus our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. There are those who got inspiration in the Apostles' Creed, most famously and most wonderfully, 
Mrs. Alexander up there in Derry. Her husband was busy, was busy bishoping or archbishoping or whatever he was doing. And she only had eight children of her own to look after, so she was casting about for something to do with her time. So she got deeply involved in work among children, trying to help children grow up in the Christian faith. And one of her numerous projects was to write hymns that would help children to understand the basic truths of the Apostles' Creed and and hymns that would appeal to a child's imagination and be concrete and pictorial. And did she ever do a good job? How would you help a child to understand maker of heaven and earth? You know Mrs. Alexander's brilliant exposition. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful. The Lord God made them all the purple-headed. How would she help a child to understand or to... You know, to be real and pictorial about born of the Virgin Mary. She did a pretty good job here too. It's sung all over the world by, by grown-ups as well as children to this day. Once in Royal David City stood a lowly cattle shed where a mother laid her baby in the manger for his bed. Mary was that mother, mild Jesus Christ. Little child, he came down to earth from heaven. You can feel the explanation for a child. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. How would she explain to a child, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried? There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven. Some hymn writers, I speculate, find inspiration in some of the writings of the great theologians of the church. I think, I speculate, see if I can persuade you, that when Graham Kendrick came up with meekness and majesty, which we've just been singing. I think he was reading a bit of Jonathan Edwards, the greatest of the American theologian philosophers. See if you think I'm right. Here's a bit of Jonathan Edwards, 18th century. I walked abroad alone. I think in those days abroad just meant out the door, really. in the fresh air or something. I walked abroad alone in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation. And as I was walking there and looking upon the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God as I know not how to express. I seemed to see them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty, and also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high, great and holy gentleness. The appearance of everything was altered. 
if I ever get to see Graham Kendrick, I'll ask him, am I right in my speculation? But that's where it came from. So from all these holy, sacred sources, songwriters and hymn writers found inspiration to have an idea that they could turn into worship. People then could pour out their praise and worship to God. However, sometimes they find inspiration in rather less holy and sacred sources. Charles Wesley, possibly one of the greatest of the hymn writers, in the middle of the about 1750 or thereabouts, in London, Dryden and Purcell had come out with their latest musical for the music hall. And the song in it that became the, the most popular song. The rest of the thing was forgotten about, but one song became very, very popular. Everybody was singing it. It was a patriotic song, the first line of which was, Fairest Isle, Island, Fairest Isle, All Isles Excelling. Uh, so I, I hardly need to tell most of you the rest. Wesley said to himself, Patriotism, there are more important emotions and loyalties in life than patriotism. Fairest Isle, England, yeah, was a pretty beautiful place, I suppose. Uh, how about love divine, all loves excelling? Joy of heaven, Jesus coming down to this earth. Come and live in us, fix in us thy humble dwelling, Jesus. May our lives then steadily be pray and praise you without ceasing and glory in your perfect love. Finish the work you've done in us. Change us from glory into glory, as the apostle put it. Till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I'm going to, this morning, give you now one specific example of a hymn and how I suggest it was composed and we will then all sing it together. It's Crown Him with Many Crowns. In Bridges and Thring, I think we're pondering a verse from the book of Revelation. I think they were looking at Revelation 19. They were pondering John's vivid, dramatic, imaginative stuff. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes are as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And I think Bridges and Thring scratched their heads. On his head were many crowns. You can't picture it. If you try to do so, it's grotesque. They would fall off. So the message, of course, for, for the book of Revelation is don't try to visualize. Think, what is John trying to say? What's he getting at here? 
by suggesting that Jesus has many crowns. In those days, apparently, kings sometimes did have more than one crown. I don't know whether Her Majesty, our Queen, has more than one crown. Uh, But in those days, for example, the Emperor of the Medes and Persians would have had one crown for being Emperor of the Medes and another crown for being Emperor of the Persians. Uh, So what could John have been suggesting about Jesus having many crowns? So they, in a sense, suggest what John may have had in mind. And we don't know whether they're right, but I would have thought their their suggestions worth has merit and is worth considering. Is Jesus the Lord, the King of life? How about if we see links between the book of Revelation and the gospel according to John? Can we think of Jesus as the one who, he who believes in me, shall never die? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus victorious over death in his resurrection and alive forevermore and giving life to all who put their trust in him. Was John suggesting that Jesus was the king of life for a start off? Was John suggesting that Jesus was the king of love? Would that have been a second of the many crowns on his head? God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him does not perish. Was Jesus the most loving person who ever lived? Does he deserve the name King of Love? We might think of the Apostle Paul's most moving testimony sentence in Galatians about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would a third of the crowns have been King of Peace, the Lord of Peace? The oft-repeated verse in the Old and New Testament, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. The Apostle Paul, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus as the king of peace, bringing peace between 
man and God and between man and man and breaking down those walls of division. And would there be one final crown that could be suggested? Could we think of Jesus as the king of time, the lord of time? It's a big emphasis in Revelation that he shall reign forever and ever. Time takes its toll on most things, including us. Jesus is untouched by time. He made it. He is Lord of it. He is king of time, the potentate of time, the expression that Bridges and Thring used. Your praise shall never, never fail through all eternity. So there we are. They thought about four possible crowns that Jesus might have had on his head in the book of Revelation, and they turn each one of them into a song of praise and worship for us to sing in our church this morning in closing. Let us pray together. Lord our God, we simply ask you to help each one of us as we sing our songs and hymns of worship and praise, traditional and modern. Help us to enter as fully as possible into each of those hymns and songs and to mean them from the bottom of our hearts. Help us to come into your presence with words of love and praise and worship. And may we be changed by that experience in our times of worship week by week. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.